Welcome everyone to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Welcome to Ride the Elephant today. Boy, this is going to be a great day. Really been thinking a lot about a conversation with our guest last week, Bill Turner. And Bill Turner has agreed to join us today because we just felt we had a lot of unfinished business. So I'll introduce him again, and then we'll get started. Bill Turner is the Director of College and Career Readiness Programming at Troy Schools in Troy, Michigan. And he has some great insights on the educational processes of today and how it applies to young people and what we need to do to prepare them for life. There's many challenges facing young people today, facing education today. So we certainly are aware of some of those. And Bill, I think I'm certain you had thoughtful reflection after our conversation last time and thought of some things that you could have said or might have said or had questions about. So I'm going to let you start with that and kind of give a synopsis of what your takeaway was and where some of our opportunities are to discuss today. Well, I mean, yeah, I could do a whole podcast on the reflections of our conversations because I think there's so much synergy between your intention and my own as an educator. And it's interesting because we have such different paths in life. You know, you've been obviously someone that has been in the industry of, I wouldn't say small business year very successful business in one aspect, and I've been sort of learning and continuing to learn just on the other end as an educator, never really having left, quote-unquote, education. And I think you can sort of get tunnel visioned, you know, both of us can, if you sort of just kind of keep your vision or your focus in whatever it is that you're doing, and you don't look out if you don't listen to others, if you don't reach out, if you don't make those connections so you can stay away from becoming sort of insulated in your own profession. And I think you have done that through your character development work and just philanthropic things that you have been driven to do in educating youth. And I, in some ways, have kept myself from being insulated through my own title because I've had to connect with industries. I've had to sit down with principals of companies and CEOs and, you know, whatever the titles may be, small business and big global corporations. And what I have learned, I think, is very similar to what you have learned, and that is that we all have a significant play in how we should and could mold the youth of today different from maybe 50 years ago. And so reflecting on the conversations that you and I had last week, what I've come away with is I think we sometimes get too myopic in our thinking as adults in how we should sort of lead our youth. And I think we all sort of feel like we have these positions and these titles and they have to be done by this person or by that person. And I think that's the great thing that I really walked away with is why has it been harder for you to get into more schools or even in the schools that you have taught in you know, the pushback because you don't have the certification, you don't have the title, and yet you're doing such great learning and you're doing such innovative 
engaging things with students, it's the same stuff that we're trying to push our teachers to do, and yet you have done all of that discovery really on your own, and we're over here on our end trying to do the same things, and I think we're missing some sort of connective tissue with how we can kind of bring both worlds together and do the same thing, and that is raise our children more effectively to get them as prepared as possible for this world. So that was my great takeaway is why are we not doing more? Why is there not a more concerted effort to bring the public into our schools, bring their vast knowledge and experience into our everyday learning to better train our teachers, to better mentor our teachers to be what students need versus maybe what in the past we thought they needed. So I don't know if I did a good job of explaining that, but that to me was the great takeaway was how different you and I are, but yet how similar we are with our intentions and how we're both sort of doing the same thing. And why aren't we partnering more with those different experiences to bring those intentions to greater life for our students? I appreciate you saying that, Bill. My takeaways are similar in the way you just expressed it. You know, you talked last time about fixed mindset versus growth mindset. And we draw some correlations between red mindsets and blue mindsets, as I talk about in Ride the Elephant or Journey to True Success, my recent book. And what struck me about what you were saying was we really are needing to look at creating growth mindsets in our students today in order to prepare them for life. And I think, okay, that is an awesome initiative. It's an awesome goal. And then I started to think about how locked into our teachers and administrators, are they in a fixed mindset? So until we break the pattern of the fixed mindset of the educational process, how successful can we transfer into teaching growth mindset to students when we don't have a growth mindset ourselves as educators? And I found that I was really struggling with that and recognizing that that's the dilemma that I have run up against in working with educators in the past is their fixed mindset. So how do we break the pattern of the fixed mindset in educators so that they're better prepared to teach growth mindsets to young people? And that's the big question. That was the underlying reason for me to call you yesterday and say, Bill, I really think we have some unfinished business here. Let's talk about this again, because I've been thinking about our conversation all week now, and it's been enlightening, and I just felt I had to get re-engaged with you again, because many of the questions you brought up were solid. I mean, you were saying things along the lines as, I really think we'd have a receptive audience in the educational institutions today for this type of approach or for the Dr. McKinley's to come into the process or other institutional leaders to come into the educational arena and help prepare these young people for their world to come. It's going to take a growth mindset by everybody to change the pre-existing paradigms and take a new look at this and say, what else can we do? So that was my goal today for this conversation was what can we do to bring this to fruition? I wrote down here as I was preparing for this today, I said, many point out the problem, few present a solution, and even fewer bring it to fruition. 
Do you find that to be true, Bill? Oh, with everything in life. And I think that probably the reason why we need more growth mindsets is because that is the typical sort of statement or narrative for most problems is there's not enough solutions that are brought to fruition because I think the world is led by too many traditional fixed mindsets. And fixed mindsets are not a bad thing. We probably should backtrack a little bit and make sure people understand that, you know, your description of it in red and blue and my correlation to red and blue, I think defines it with much more of the underlying currents that maybe kind of connect with so many important things with parenting and relationships and all of that. And I'm looking at it more from how did we learn in the past versus how should we be learning in the present and the future. And so fixed mindsets were a safe way of learning. It was a way of making sure that you were attentive to get the answer right, you know, in the simplest way. And I think there was a time in our educational world, if I could go back to what was kind of said last week, where a fixed mindset made sense in how people learned and really what the expectation was for public education for its learners. It was more of an industrial sort of need where everybody sort of had a role and you needed to be attentive to what that role is, following instructions, being able to demonstrate that you can accomplish tasks through the explanation and understanding of those instructions, that you could be punctual, that you could have the stamina for the information and demonstration of that information. That was kind of the need back then. And in the world today is everything that you describe. We need to be problem solvers because things move so fast. There isn't time to sort of figure it out. We need people to come in and be resilient to setbacks so that the problem can be not only solved, but it can be then put into action so that you can get better results. So how do we do that with educators that probably are more likely than not of a fixed mindset because they went through the old educational system and were successful at it? And why were they successful at it? They were successful at it because they knew how to play that quote-unquote game of school. That, to me, is probably the biggest hurdle right now is that a majority of the educators that you're working with and that I'm working with that I think in many ways I was a product of, I think I am struggling to not have a fixed mindset in my own journey because of how important it is in my recognition of that. But I know that I was a fixed mindset in my time as a student. I know that I set limitations on myself because of that fixed mindset. I know that the more success I had with grades, the more it set me back because I got very eager to continue to get those good grades. So if I ever saw myself going up against a real challenge that might affect or disrupt the pattern of good grades, I would take a step back because I was afraid of getting something less than what I had sort of built from a standpoint of a GPA. And I know there's many like me in education, and that's why we sort of probably fell into it because we saw it as being very comfortable for us and we were very good at it, so we just kept going. And I think there's many of us, and maybe the paradigm is changing because the narrative is becoming more acknowledged in universities, and so maybe they're attracting a different type of candidate. I don't really know that 
I'm ready to say that that's a certainty because a lot of the young teachers that I'm hiring, I still see that same sort of apprehension to be more innovative and to be more progressive in how my young teachers plan and engage students. I think it still is a really special person when you're able to hire a teacher that does have a growth mindset and really does do a lot of the things that I think you recognize we need as mentors. And I guess my question back to you, Dr. Kinley, is did you always have a growth mindset or was that something that you over time sort of discovered and then wanted to share with others? That's a good question. I would say that I had both. I would say that I had a fixed mindset being imposed on me, and my nature was to have a growth mindset. I did not do, like, your course of education was to strive for the A's and to got the A's, and that seemed to kept creating that desire to continue that process along. I was in remedial learning. Do you remember what remedial learning was back in the day? I don't think they use that term oh, yeah. anymore, but I was always at that table in the elementary classroom that just was given pictures to draw because we couldn't read. And when I got to a point where I was in eighth grade, my counselors called my parents in and said, Ray cannot take college prep classes because he's not college material. Now, my mom and dad felt that I had a growth mindset because they saw me do things in their world, on the farm, and in the family businesses that were quite creative. And I would excel in those areas, but academics, I did not. So I was being pigeonholed by a counselor saying that I couldn't go to take college prep classes. And of course, they decided that they needed to move me into another school to give me an opportunity to take college prep classes. And about 17 or 18 years old, just before I went to college, I, the light bulb went off and I said, okay, if I'm going to be something that I want to be and fulfill my dreams of being a dentist, I got to get this down. And I really started to think of ways that I could find to be educated. You know, I realized at the time now I would have been considered dyslexic. And of course, back when I was in school, there was no identification of learning disabilities. And I was very disabled when it came to learning, but I found a way and I had to be very creative in finding a way to get through. And I fortunately had an, a teacher who saw me struggle and she said to me, Ray, I want you to read that last paragraph of the chapter. And when I read it, she says, okay, now I want you to write down some questions that you have as a result of what you just read. Okay, let's start thinking of some of the questions. So I was creatively thinking of the questions that possibly could have came to these conclusions that they wrote about in this last paragraph. And I wrote them all down and she said, now I want you to go back that chapter, peruse it, just look through it and see if you can find the answers. So I perused the chapter and looked and I said, oh yeah, here's what they talk about this. And I said, oh, okay. And so I learned about that. And then I looked at my next question and I went back and looked at that. And I went to my next question and I looked at that and I was blessed to find a creative way. I guess the moral of the story is, Bill, I found a way through my creative coaching and creative mentoring and the art of asking questions that caused me to be a critical thinker and to find answers. And that experience for me brought me to how I taught 
critical thinking in my class to seniors in high school. I took it from my own experiences of struggling through the academic process. So it's kind of crazy, but it kind of created a different mindset. You know, I remember my dad and his wisdom. I'm in eighth grade, just almost 14. There's a big snowstorm and all the schools are closed. And they didn't have the ability back then sometimes to plow out the snow and get it all out of the way because it was a big, heavy snow. And my dad said, Ray, he says, yeah, I want you to take the grader. And we had a grader on the farm, or actually it was, uh, it was an airport in Fraser, And we used it to clean the runways on the airport. I oftentimes did that at 13 and 14 years old. He said, drive it over there to the high school and get that snow out of the way. So I go driving it over to the high school, 14 years old, down the road in a grader. And I pull in and I'm going down the circle driveway at Fraser High School and I'm cleaning out the parking lot. Well, the counselor, the assistant principal, came out and said, what are you doing out here? And I said, I'm just cleaning out the driveway. And he's looking at me and he says, you're the one that I just feel is uneducatable. And here you're out here cleaning out our driveway. So then I think he had a wake-up call and say, maybe Ray has some talent after all. But for some reason, my dad figured out a way to work with my strengths. And as long as he did that, then I was able to figure it out along the way. So I was blessed with the dad who gave me those opportunities, even though they weren't studying in a book. But eventually I figured it out. I ended up on the dean's list in college and got in dental school after three years. And I was in the top of my class. So, you know, I did figure it out. But I think so many students today are not given those chances. So I would have to say, Bill, I had a growth mindset. I was blessed to have that. So I think we all have a growth mindset within us. And I think you were being trained to speak to the fixed mindset. Because again, I don't think a fixed mindset is a bad thing. I think it's a safe thing. I think it's what protects us. I think we have to have routines. We have to have a regimented sense of discipline so that we aren't just a mile wide and an inch deep or we're not unfocused. You know, Because there's a lot of people in this world that just have no discipline, but they have a tremendous sense of that sort of growth mindset characteristics, but they don't get anything done because they don't have the discipline to follow through with it. So I do think a fixed mindset or some of the characteristics of a fixed mindset can be a good thing. And I don't know that I made that clear before, but but my problem that I've noticed that you suffered from very early on is that you were sort of labeled or judged due to your maybe lack of really adhering to the fixed mindset type of learning. So because you weren't demonstrating maybe the discipline that some of your classmates were, there were some people, very few people, but very few people can be very influential in public education, you know, because you're dealing with very vulnerable young minds that are going through this Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, the goal is to be self-actualized, right? Well, that doesn't happen until you're 18, depending on the individual, but sometimes much, much later, 25, 26. But the goal is self-actualization. Self-actualization is all about confidence. What gets in the way of confidence in public education? I think it's these mindsets. So I listen to you and I hear your story. And there were a few people that you can recall that were probably standing in your way of your goals, your dreams, whatever they may be. They were in your way because they were sort of saying you were only going to be this or you're not good enough for that. 
And they probably had good intentions with that because they don't want you to fail and they don't want this and they don't want that. And they're seeing through a very limited scope of your talents, your demonstrative talents, they're saying, you won't be able to do this. And then you got your parents and whoever, the teacher who maybe inspired you for the first time to actually sort of capture or think about the growth mindset that was always within you to be a better critical thinker. And then you sort of started to kind of open up that door a little bit more and your confidence grew. My wondering is how many of the Ray McKinley's in this world didn't have that aha moment that could be so much different or so much more than they were given credit for because there were people in their lives that missed the growth mindset opportunity within them. And really what it comes down to is we need more people that don't just have the unusual confidence that you had, because I hear your story and I don't know that you're giving yourself enough credit or your parents or whoever it is that you want to attribute this to. The reason you overcame it was not because you had this tremendous growth mindset voice. It was because somewhere inside of you, you had the confidence, you had the resilience to go after something that people that were there to sort of govern the permission for you to go into this journey or that journey in life, you were able to overcome that and do what you wanted to do. And I think that's, to me, something that unfortunately so many other young people don't have. They don't have that confidence. They don't have that ability to wade through all of the quote unquote negativity to do what was really meant for them or to start sort of going down the journey to help prepare them for what was really meant for them. And that's why we need to do a better job in public education with how influential we really are as adults and how our mindsets need to change so that we can have a better perspective on all of our students. So we don't pigeonhole them through one or two incidents so that we create a learning environment where they are given multiple opportunities to kind of work through their own critical thinking mishaps or like some people just need more time to understand how to critically think. So they can't be sort of shuffled aside or labeled or given the impression that, yeah, they're just not good at this. And I think math is a perfect example of that, that we struggle with in this country so much because math is a beautiful language that is so connected to critical thinking And yet so many kids are crippled by it from a very early age because of the fixed mindset of education. Everything about math is tied to an assessment. Everything about math is tied to something that's black and white when really math is not black and white. It's a beautiful language, and that's a language of critical thinking. And I've talked to professors at universities that are teaching high-level math classes. I've talked to grad students that are doing their doctorate in math-related topics, they all tell me the same thing, that math in high schools and middle schools are going about it the wrong way, and that math really is a beautiful learning language that really is all about the growth mindset, and yet it's taught through a fixed mindset. And so that's just an example of something that we really need to look at differently so that we have more Ray McKinley stories. Because for every one of you, I guarantee you there's a 100 that didn't end up going to college because someone told them and they listened that they couldn't do it. Because who wants to go into something to fail? Very few people want that because failure is something we're told 
means that you screwed up in life. And man, if we could make failure something that we embrace and something that we really appreciate, we could really be getting ourselves out of that hole. Well, speaking as an expert in failure, I can understand and appreciate what you're saying. Uh, (laughs) I uh, spend a lot of time failing in my academics, but one of the things I didn't fail at was doing projects and work and calculations and figuring things out, taking problems and fixing them on the farm and in the workplace at a very young age. So it really gave me the confidence to do that. And I think that's missing too today. We don't give young people enough opportunities to learn through their physical energies. I think sometimes we miss our opportunities there to develop them. And I think we find ourselves talking about the problem and the situation. Let's spend some time and say, all right, let's fix this. What needs to be fixed? It may never happen, but let's just look at it and see. Let's make a decision. Now we're going to fix this. And one of the things that I would do if I was asked to come in and say, give us some ideas. You taught a class on critically thinking, Dr. McKinley. You spent some time. It was a great class. The kids really enjoyed it. What type of things did you do to stimulate critically thinking that was different than that was done in the traditional classroom? And I said, well... One of the things I realized was the misuse of Bloom's taxonomy. And yes, it can be used to develop the verbiage of how we say things and the messages that we make. But Bloom developed a pyramid that starts with remembering, understanding, then above that was apply, analyze, evaluate, and create. And one of the things that we do in academics today is We really get the kids, we teach them what they need to know, and we teach them knowledge, and we want them to remember the knowledge. Then we get them to understand it, so if they can report it back to us as a memory, and better than that, report back their understanding of it, just not remembering it, and then teach them how to apply it. Now, we do that fairly well in the primary school and high schools. However, we don't analyze, evaluate, and create very well. So if I was to say, one of the things that we need to do is we need to ask our educators to analyze, evaluate, and create situations that allow the students to critically think things through. One of the exercises that I did, in fact, I had a young lady who was a student of mine about seven years ago. She is teaching in a school in the west side of Detroit, and she sent me a note, and she says, Dr. McKinley, Tell me why you had us put all the words that you taught us in a book. It was like a lexicon. Why did you do that, and how did you evaluate it? And I said, well, every time we came up with a word, I, we put it in the book, and we gave an explanation of what it was, and we defined it, and we left it there. And I said, my goal was to get you to create a word cloud that you could then connect the dots. She said, oh, that's why I was so engaged, because it was the dot connection that was so important. I said, yes, connecting the dots is the most important thing. That's the critical thinking exercise. So you create these word clouds, you put all these words together, and it could be 20, 30, 40, 50 words or concepts in the cloud, and then you process the student to connect the dots. It requires critical thinking in order to do that. 
And then the other thing that we did was then I asked you to bring those words to your mentor every Friday, and the mentor was there to ask you how you connected the dots of these words. So you basically were explaining in your own words what you were learning and the level of your learning as you broke down these word clouds. And she said, oh, okay, well, I was asked to teach a psychology class in my school, and I thought of that exercise and how much I learned from that. So I wanted to talk to you about it. And she said, how did you grade it? Because it seemed like I was compelled to do it. And I said, well, I just graded it based on its neatness and thoroughness and completeness. I really didn't read every word or correct it for grammar. The important thing is, is that you were doing the thinking to put it down. She says, oh, okay, I get that. So she's all excited now to use that. She's creating her syllabus for this class that she's going to teach this fall in psychology. And I thought, not good for her. You know, she's going back at that time and applying some of those things. So one of the things that I found these creative ways to reach students, you know, I taught them the art of Socratic questioning. Socratic question is always asking the question that comes to you when you hear the answer. So when the person gives the answer, you creates the next question. Instead of you having your fixed mindset question you're going to ask, you now ask a question based on what the answer was. So you're taking the person where they're at, they're answering the question, even if it's wrong, you ask a Socratic question, is then processing them to a different level of understanding. Instead of saying, oh no, that's wrong. I never would say that's wrong. I would just ask a Socratic question. So we did these sayings in the classroom and I did it by taking the students, and I had half the students be mentors and half the students be students. So they both took turns being the Socratic teacher as they processed someone else's thinking. And then the next day or the next week, we had them switch roles, and they switched, and they became the student and the other student the mentor. So they developed the skill of external listening, flagging presumptions, calling out negations, looking for core beliefs, values, and principles, and really processing each other through critical thinking exercises that really was great. I mean, it switched my class from being didactic to experiential. I was big on experiential learning. And I found most teachers want to teach it didactically. They say, here are the facts, here's the information, here's the knowledge, here's what you need to know for the test, here's the test, now let's move on. And I would always avoid that, and I always focused on experiential learning. So I look at those things, Bill, and what is it going to take for ideas like that to come through the administration of a school system and bring them to the classroom? Well, yeah, that is the million-dollar question, and I guess I would start by saying, man, you should have been a teacher because all these things that you're doing I've witnessed these things. You're not alone. You're not the only one. Never did you claim that, but I'm reassuring you that I've seen this in many classrooms, this type of thinking, but it isn't the norm, as you already know, and the reason it's not the norm is because there isn't an evaluative process that ultimately sort of creates the educational proof or systemness that we're actually educating our students, and that's really all we want. We want to keep our community, all of our stakeholders, our diplomats, our parents, our community leaders, 
we want everyone to say that institution is doing a great job. The proof is always in the pudding, Dr. McKinley. So the way that we do this experiential learning that you're describing that's so important, so powerful, you have seen it with some of the testimonies of your students that have come back to you. And again, we don't ever measure things based on anecdotes, but if you have enough people coming back and telling you you changed their life, you got to start really thinking you're doing something right. And I've seen some of your students have come back and worked for you, and you have seen their development as young people into adults. You have watched it not only work, you have watched them really profoundly have a lot of success. So I think you have a lot of confidence that this works. I have a lot of confidence that it works. The question of how we make it more available to communities across the board is we have to make the measuring stick something that can account for more teachers embracing it because they know the accountability is there because then they will be reassured that they're not being rogue, that their hand's not going to be slapped because they have proof that this way of teaching and engaging is working through the products that they have, which is their students. So the end product is the student. The community wants the student to be successful. We have to change the narrative of what success means for our high school students as they enter post-secondary life. So how do we measure that currently versus how should we measure it moving forward if we really want this to be embraced? And I know there's countries that are doing this better than us, but this is where I go back to what I said earlier, and I don't want to get caught up in the politicalness of this, but when you allow people that govern you to make the decisions without really truly knowing the experience of learning today versus 10 years ago, 20 years ago, then you're probably going to get a product that doesn't hit its mark the way that you and I want it to. So that is your answer. Your answer is we have to become more recognized in how we govern the practices through the results. And that means the result of what we're looking for has to change. It can't be just, you know, are you college ready? Are you successful on this standardized test? There has to be more measuring sticks that start to really focus in on the skills that you are seeing and wanting more from your students. And it's a messy process. It's not as black and white. That's what's hard about it, but that's what's beautiful about it. It's a little bit more gray, but it's a little bit more gray because it covers so many different aspects of our students' learning. Okay, so we talk about assessment. We talk about evaluation, and it has to fit into the parameters of what is expected from the administration and from the governmental agencies and all those things. Okay, so I have found that when I created self-assessment tools and self-evaluating tools for the student to do their own assessment and their own evaluation, I was shocked by how honest and candid they were. And they did a better job of self-assessing and evaluating their performance than I did. And it meant more to them when they were responsible for their own assessment. So there are tools and there are ways to create self-assessment in the student and allow them to evaluate. And that is a critical thinking process in itself. It engages their mind, it engages their self-talk, it engages their thinking. You start to look for presumptions and negations and self-affirmations 
And you start looking for those things in their self-assessment. And that's what they're evaluated on instead of the content, because that's more important. So to me, that was a powerful thing to observe when I started to allow the students to self-assess. And I was shocked by how honest and candid they were and how they were more engaged and wanting to learn more because of their own self-assessment. So we think we have all the answers. We think we're the best ones to evaluate them. And that's our job to evaluate them. No, that's not my job to evaluate you as a student. That's your job. And I'm going to be here to mentor you and encourage you to do that. And we had some students who played games with it and didn't take it serious. Mm-hmm. And what I did, I solved that problem. I didn't say this to them. I said, okay, so you're going to play games with this, okay? But I knew they were. That was my assessment that they were playing games and they weren't processing into these four areas. Then I would say, all right, here, let's go into this media center. I'd send them to another room. There was a proctor in that room, so it was like a study hall room. And they did a didactic exercise. So I had two sets of students, students who were going through experiential learning, and then I had a group of students who did didactic learning. At one point, I had over half my students in the media center doing the didactic exercises. And the only way that that could stop is if they came to me and had a meeting with me. And one by one, they came to me and said, Dr. McKinley, okay, I would rather be in the room. And I said, well, in order to be in the room and listen and be a part of this experiential learning that we're doing in this room, you need to do these things. And are you going to take it seriously or not? And if you're not, then stay in the media center, complete your didactic exercises, and you'll get a grade for this class because you completed what the teacher expected of you. So here's your grade. But at the end of the semester in this room, your grades can be determined by your own self-evaluation and your honesty and candidness to do that. So usually it took about four or five days to get most of the kids back. And we had a few kids on a holdout for two or three weeks, and they finally all broke the pattern and said, okay, I want to get back in the classroom. So there are ways to make it happen. There are ways to get these kids to critically think things through. And to me, it's the lack of self-assessment, the lack of self-evaluation that is missing because teachers feel like they are the ones that are responsible to do the evaluations. When is that going to change? And if you believe that needs to change, Bill, I want you to tell me how you would go about it. Well, I'm trying to do that in the small ways that I have the leadership opportunities. I think one of the things in the state of Michigan is not only open to this, they actually have a team that is building rubrics that sort of define and provide language around the accountability, but it's in competency-based learning that is so tied to the experiences that you're describing. Self-assessment is competency. You don't just become good at it because somebody gives you the opportunity. It does require a different type of thinking in your own reflection of self. You know, we can reflect on ourselves and say, we're the greatest athlete in the school. And it wouldn't take long if you were a person challenging that statement by giving that student some opportunity to provide some evaluative substance around why they made that statement. And if they can't do that, then they would probably quickly adjust that reflection of self. And that same sort of metaphor can be applied to different learning competencies as it relates to self-reflection. 
And I think there's many other competencies that are an important part of the experiential learning process, creativity, collaboration, communication, these things that we're doing in learning, and we've been doing for a long time in learning, we just need to bring them to the forefront and make them a bigger part of the learning experience so that we're not being myopic in how we teach kids. And I think it does require administrators, it requires, you know, business leaders like yourself that say, yes, this is what we need. It gives permission. That's what happened for me is these business leaders were telling me, here's what our students that we're hiring from your school that came from our great colleges, Michigan, Michigan State, some of our private institutions and some of our more local universities, they all are hiring them from universities outside of our state and they all have the same problem. And they're missing some of these competencies that these industries need for their businesses to flourish because they constantly are having to change how they go about doing their business because of what we talked about. Everything's so fast-paced. So they need students that are more of your topic for today. They need them to be more of a growth mindset. So how then do we do it? We talk to those business leaders. We convince everyone that we need to convince so that the teachers and the mentors that are in the classrooms can start engaging those students with some of those processes and that they are then held accountable in a different way. So self-reflection becomes a greater part of the teacher's head. Think about it. When you're at a university, one of the things that teachers at universities hold their professors accountable by is the reflection of the students at the end of the course. You know, we don't do that in public education. We have an evaluation Mm -hmm. process and it's done by a teacher and administrator who is in the classroom, a robust two times a year. And that is a reflection of how that teacher is really doing. You know, how many missed opportunities do we have there in the evaluation process if we're not getting to the most important stakeholders, the students and their parents? The students and the parents and and the business leader. Yes. So those types of things, they can be done. I think they are being done in pockets around our country. They're definitely being done globally. But I think it does start with these conversations like you and I are having today them being put into more professional development. And when people are making system changes, when they're thinking about, you know, the vision process for a district, when they're talking about the next four years, that they're bringing those stakeholders into those meetings and making sure that they're hitting on what everybody is saying is needed. And then then maybe that's going to promote the real system accountability that I think ultimately is holding back some of our future. I'll tell you, I haven't met a teacher yet that doesn't agree with everything you said today. So I want that to be known publicly that I'm not sitting here being disparaging to the teachers that are in public schools and private schools right now. What I'm saying is a lot of them are apprehensive because they lack the training or, more importantly, they think they lack some sort of credit because there's no way to really measure the experiences that you're talking about. So they will default to some of the things that they know they can show because there's proof in that pudding. So I think we're getting there. I think what you're doing and have been doing for a long time may have been really progressive 10 years ago. Now more people are doing it, but we need to create a systemness around it because it's a big system. It's not something that we can do if we just speak sort of ideologically, you know, just like your business. You want those mindsets, but then you have a very specific training regimen that you put them through. You make them observe you. You have meetings, at least you used to, that I knew when we talked, 
you would have weekly meetings or you would take them to lunch and you would sit down with your team and you would make sure that your finger was on the pulse of that team. You would send them to conferences. I think you still go to every conference that you can that's related to your business and making sure that you continue to develop. You don't get stagnant. You're a very dynamic leader in that way. And I think we have to be that same way in education. And you probably don't realize it, or maybe you do. We get very static in our educational institutions because of the dynamic responsibility of just being a day-to-day classroom teacher. There's so many nuances that they get caught up in. It's hard for teachers to be progressive in those ways without the system building that progressiveness into their expectations. Yeah. Bill, I think this is exciting. As we come to a close in this podcast, you bring out some great points. I really appreciated the conversation we've had again today. You know this, and I'm going to encourage you. I am waiting for an invitation to come from somebody, you and somebody you encourage, to invite me to be a part of a process that takes this out of the realm of just hoping and wishing and would like to and brainstorming and ideas generation to actually making the difference. When I first started teaching my class for the first year, this was about 18 years ago when I started, I didn't know exactly what I was going to get into, but when I figured it out as I went along the way. And this is what I feel with this. We need to get together, brainstorm, critically think it through, apply the principles we're going to ask our students to have, and apply it to ourselves and get out of the fixed mindset, have a growth mindset, and move this forward including the parents, including the teachers, including the administrators, including business leaders. And I think it can be done. And I would love to be a part of that process. And I'm just waiting for the invitation to do so. So as you think about it, consider me in. How do you feel about that? We have one minute Consider that done. I'm already thinking. All right. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. I know you are because I know your intention is very clear. You've been very clear about that here. And the obstacles that get in the way of your intentions coming to fruition, sometimes it's hard for us to make those happen on our own. It was difficult for me to make it happen on its own. And I'm saying, let's collaborate. Let's get together. I think the more people we can get involved in this initiative, the better. And I think we'll come up with some answers. So thank you again, Bill, for joining us today for Ride the Elephant Today. Have a great week. Let me know when you want to get together again. And thank you, everyone else, for joining us. We'll see you next week. Dr. Ray McKinley is a speaker, author, and coach. In his new book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, Dr. McKinley addresses the crisis in personal leadership and what you can do about it. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week. Thank you.